This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hi, this is Wayne Perret and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson, along with our guest screenwriter and novelist, Marvin J. Wolf. Marv is the author of the Rabbi Ben Mystery Series. The third entry of the Rabbi Ben Mystery Series is a tale of two rabbis, a tale of two rabbis available in paperback and for the Kindle through Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. Also through iBooks and for uh, Barnes & Noble and Kobo. Almost anywhere that you can get an ebook, you can get this book. Anywhere you can get an ebook, you can get a copy of A Tale of Two Rabbis. For more information on Marv Wolf, go to MarvinJWolf.com. Marvin, letter J W O L F, MarvinJWolf.com. By the way, another example of the traveling angel is the first one I was actually aware of after Paladin or. Have gun will travel was Route 66. Yes, yep. It's another perfect example. They go from town to town, solving problems. Yeah, an, another modern day western, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, archetypal western is a strong, silent man. Mm -hmm. Ben is very strong, but he's not silent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I felt that an, another duty I had, and this I hope is is an unusual or perhaps unique. Uh, element. There have been other books about clergymen who were detectives. Mm -hmm. Aside from the Kimmelman books, I don't know of a rabbi. There might be a contemporary series, which I am not aware of, but there have been a number of priests uh, and other clergymen. Right, Father Brown being one such example. Yeah, Father Brown is a perfect example from television. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was uh, an actual priest whose name doesn't come to mind right away, who, who was writing about... Uh, I mean, one of his books is called The Cardinal Sins. Oh, okay. That would be Andrew Greeley, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Dr. Greeley. Yeah. In each of their cases, they, they introduce very small doses of religion. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing, but I'm doing it for another reason. Uh, I'm doing it because this rabbi uses a, a prototypically Jewish method of reasoning. It's not Socratic reasoning. It's inferential Reasoning. That would be Talmudic logic, correct? Yes. The, Tal the, the Talmud is an enormous collection of a bunch of ancient rabbis arguing with each other across the ages. That's exactly what it is. It's very poorly edited, I might add. <laughs> it, 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 it was, for a very long time, for 500 years, unwritten. It was passed down word of mouth to people who were brought to meetings 
gatherings of a few rabbis, three or four to maybe eight or nine, however many were, were needed and available, where they discussed elements of the law, the law being the Torah. And the, the, the lovely thing about the Bible, the Jewish Bible is called the Torah, mm -hmm. and it's the Old Testament, is that uh, the wisdom it contains evolves in its meaning from age to age, so that it has to be reinterpreted for every age. The Talmud came about because of the destruction of the second temple, actually the first temple in 586 BC, and Judaism up to that point had been a religion of barbecue at the first temple, in Solomon's temple. And now all of these Jews were cut off into captivity in Babylon, and uh, the Jews then didn't have a, a priest to go to uh, at the temple, they didn't have a sacrifice to make, but they, they remained Jews, and the, the religion then became portable. Because it became portable, it became a matter of interpretation over and over again. So the Talmud is the, the notes of the meetings of these eminent rabbis of their time discussing what should be the law in any particular case. And very often they cite rabbis that have been dead for 300 years and argue with them over what they wrote. That's another aspect of my people, <laughs> of, the, of the Jewish people. We, uh, the, the old joke is uh, if you put two Jews in a room, you'd have three arguments. <laughs> We're not the only people who argue, yeah. but we're the ones who are proud of it. You said something that's very interesting. I never heard it quite put that way before, and if I misquote you, please correct me. I believe you said for many years Judaism was a religion of barbecue. Did, did, yeah, yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, okay, let's, let's go back to the time of the first temple. Okay. The temple was in Jerusalem. It was the seat of government, which was, of course, both a government and a religion. You know, there, there wasn't a king. Uh -huh. uh, the high priest basically ran the country by telling everybody what the laws meant. And on several occasions during the year, and on other occasions when it suited them, on several occasions during the year, you, have, you were commanded to go to, to the temple, bring a livestock, you know, what you could afford, a, uh, a dove, a goat, mm -hmm. a bull, mm -hmm. uh, and the... Uh, Priests would ritually slaughter it, and then they would discard the entrails and the hide, and they would burn it on an altar. Well, what this altar was was a big fire with a grill over it. Mm -hmm. If that's not barbecue. <laughs> and then half the meat went to the priests. They had no other source of income. Yeah. Uh, as time went on, and it became very inconvenient for people to bring livestock from far corners of the world, the ancient world. Uh, you could send money, and then they would buy a goat or uh, a lamb or whatever and slaughter it there. So, yeah, uh, us really, really hip Jews, we, we know it was religion apartment. <laughs> and by the way, folks, the impromptu description of Judaism, and including the colloquial term that Marv just used, a religion of a barbecue. Well, that scene is not in A Tale of Two Rabbis, but it's an example of the sort of scene you might see in Marv's novels, where in the course of telling the story, 
you may have impromptu discussions or teachings, because after all, Ben is a teacher. You know, that, that is one of the things that a rabbi does. And so there are many interesting conversations in the course of the novel about religion and all of that, but it serves the story. You don't have just these long stretches of dialogue and teachings. Like a good work of fiction, everything in A Tale of Two Rabbis serves the story and moves it along. A Tale of Two Rabbis, available Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, wherever paperback books are sold. It's also available uh, for the Kindle, for the Kobo, uh, wherever ebooks are sold. More information, MarvinJWolf.com. Another phrase that is part of who Ben is as a character, part of his motivation, part of his makeup, for lack of a better word, is something called Tikkun. Now, now I'm going to probably screw up the... I'll say, I'll say it, Tikkun okay. Olam. Okay, well, what is Tikkun Olam? We are taught that when God created the world, he didn't finish the job, but that is left to mankind to finish it, to perfect the world. So Tikkun Olam means to heal the world or to fix the world or to complete the world, depending on exactly what it is you're trying to say. And so uh, every act of a rabbi should be directed towards Tikkun Olam, trying to heal the world, make it a little more perfect. And in, in Ben's case, there's some backstory that motivates what he tries to do in order to make the world perfect, or at least make his world perfect. Yes. I know that's not a question. I'm just sort of elaborating on the concept and how it comes into play in the Rabbi Ben series. Well, whatever he takes a job on or whatever he is asked to help, that has to be an element of why he would do it. Mm-hmm. So in, in this particular book, A Tale of Two Rabbis, if you have a rabbi that's missing from his congregation, that's something that he can fix, maybe, if mm-hmm. he can find that rabbi. He can restore him to his pulpit, and then everybody will be happy, and the world will be just a little bit more perfect. And it would be that way uh, in the first book, For Whom the Chauffeur Blows. They have uh, discovered that there's an unexpectedly large sum of money had been deposited in one of the synagogue accounts, and they want to know where it came from if they can keep it. Well, is that money supposed to be there or is it not? That's his job to find out. Whatever he decides, that will be to make the world a little more perfect. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One more item if you're like me and want to eat better this year. Our friends at Factor have more than 35 inexpensive, pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day fun and delicious and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check out that stuff by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. TV50. If you go to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50, you'll find more than 35 different options a week to choose from that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 and use code talk TV50 to get 50% off 
your order. Factormeals.com forward slash TalkTV50. Use promo code TalkTV50 to get 50% off your order. That's code TalkTV50 at Factormeals.com forward slash TalkTV50 to get 50% off. By the way, one does not need to have read For Whom the Chauffeur Blows in order to enjoy A Tale of Two Rabbis. But no, they're all standalone books. They're all standalone books, but if you read A Tale of Two Rabbis first, you probably want to go back to For Whom the Chauffeur Blows. And as we said, uh, paperbacks are available through Amazon.com, ebooks are available uh, through Kobo, Smashwords, iTunes, iTunes Amazon. Any place you can get an e-book. Any place you can get an e-book. As we said, I mean, structurally, there's sequences of dialogue. It's very interesting dialogue. But there's action where there needs to be action. To you, what is harder to write, Marvin? Action sequence? Uh, In action, you have to dissect what's going to happen and break it down into as many little pieces as you can deconstruct it and then tell them one at a time. Mm -hmm. So in some ways... So you can find anything on the internet these days. If you have a, you want to see a guy going over a cliff in a car and get a guy out of the car in the middle of the air and snagging a branch, mm-hmm. you probably find that, and then you just deconstruct it. The hard part of that is figuring out things that nobody's done before or that haven't done that way. If you get trapped in a burning house, how many ways are there to get out? It depends on where you are in the house, right? Yeah. Uh, In the classic one, you jump off the burning roof into a a body of water. Uh, My guy's in the basement, there's no water. On the subject of dialogue, dialogue is challenging because you have to try to stay true to your character. And because it's dialogue, there's always two people speaking, Mm -hmm. one at a time, we hope. Uh, (laughs) And pacing. Yeah. Pacing and dialogue is really important. Periodically, I like to interrupt my dialogue with something else, either a little bit of action or uh, some narrative, anything that moves the story along. But reading page after page after page of dialogue gets pretty boring. You want to create a sense of movement so that, you know, it's not just two disembodied voices. You want to at least remind the readers that as these two people are talking, they're doing something, whether it's sitting across each other you know, eating Chinese food or whether they're uh, going on a run together or... Well, yeah, see, that's, that's another uh, movie and TV thing. Yeah. If a guy is going to eat Chinese food, he's got to be talking while he's eating it. Mm-hmm. If a guy is going to be talking, he's got to be doing something while he's got to be going downstairs, driving in a car, uh, talking on a phone, getting dressed, whatever. He can't just be a talking head. I know for a lot of first, you know, for people who've never done it before, it's a misconception to think, well, dialogue is easy. You just go, you know, he said, she said, he said, she said. But to do it in a way so that it's interesting, engaging, and moves the story along, that is always the trick. There's also one more thing, and this is the hardest thing there is to learn. And so I'm very grateful to uh, Larry Mintz, who was my tutor in screenwriting. We, we were partners for about nine years. Uh, and although we only got one movie produced, we wrote a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Every team of partners works a slightly different way. He was not real computer friendly, and he didn't type well. He would sit facing me, and we would talk through a scene. Mm-hmm. Just go back through it. He starts, this is how we start the scene, this is how we want to end the scene, this is what the middle is, 
these are the transitions. And then I would sit down and, uh, and there would, you know, there'd be a conversation. I'd sit down and write a, a draft and that might take me five or 10 minutes and he'd go get a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or use the bathroom or whatever. <laughs> and then he'd come back and I'd read it to him. Yeah. And he'd close his eyes and listen. And his most common comment to me was, no, the conversation is too much on the nose. And by that he meant, and, and this is a failing of mine, I, I tend to be overly literal in my uh, apprehension of the world. If somebody says, uh, what time is it? I might start to tell them how to make a watch. <laughs> People very often don't answer the question that's asked. Yeah. Are you hungry? The answer to that is, is yes or no, but that's boring. Yeah. And so, uh, are you hungry? Could be answered. I was thinking of uh, lox and bagels. Yeah. Uh, or it could be we can't afford to go out. Or it could be we don't have much in the house. Or it could be you're always eating. Yeah. But it isn't yes or no. So that's what we mean by being on the nose, and that's the hard part. So for you or any novelist, the trick is finding the sweet spot between making it sound authentic, realistic, without being too on the nose. Exactly. It can't be on the nose. And the other thing is you have to try to accommodate, as far as you can, any regionalisms. Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, believe it or not, has its own patois. (laughs) <laughs> it has its own sayings. Uh, I had the great good fortune some years ago to, to be deeply, deeply, deeply in love with a woman who lived there. And so I used to go there as often as I could. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very unusual city for American cities. It has a lot of ethnic neighborhoods that are very, very stable, unlike most big cities. Uh, there's not much gentrification going. There's some, but not not much. So every, every place has its its own peculiarities, and one of the challenges that I actually hadn't thought of when I started on this path is figuring out uh, what those peculiarities are. It's fortunate I had been to Pittsburgh uh, many times, and I had picked some of that up, and I had a good sense of it. Another thing about Rabbi Ben that is biblical is he has dreams very often, more so in this particular book because... Every week or so, he's going one of these ejections, and he's bedridden mm-hmm. for a day or two. So, but all of the dreams must have some purpose. They must have a purpose in moving the story forward. Marv Wolf is with us via Skype. Marv is the author of A Tale of Two Rabbis, the third entry in the Rabbi Ben mystery series. Rabbi Ben is a crime-solving rabbi whose attributes will remind you of such characters as Paladin, Dr. Richard Kimball, and, in at least one respect, Jim Rockford. We'll take a quick time out, then we'll continue our conversation with Marv here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash TV Confidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first time home buyer, 
or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.